Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 80, recorded on July 29th, 2020. The Cloud Pod, now with more soul. Good evening, Peter and Ryan. Hello. How's it going? Eh, you know, it's been busy. Uh, we, we were going to have Jonathan with us, but then we, we kicked him out for a better person. And so uh, I'd like to introduce Ian McKay, who's joining us this week here on the show. I'm not sure, sure about better. <laughs> Good evening, guys. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you do do a lot more free work for Amazon than the rest of us do. So I, I feel like, you know, somewhere in the karma category of the world that, that you know, adds more, more for you than Jonathan. Because he doesn't contribute open source for Amazon like you do. <laughs> yeah. I, only lots of tweets, right? <laughs> yeah, just tweets and, and you know, point at them, etc. <laughs> well, the uh, uh, the week has been busy. Uh, we skipped a week here, so we're a little bit behind. So we have a lot of news to get through, and uh, we have Ian here, of course. So we'll cover out some of his great open source contributions as he's been on a roll, as I mentioned just a second ago. Uh, as we go through here, so let's uh, let's start out with earnings. Uh, Microsoft released their earnings before. Uh, Azure, and, or sorry, before uh, Google and AWS. So we'll talk about them this week, and we'll cover the other two next week. Uh, but uh, they reported fourth quarter 2020 earnings uh, with an increase of 13 uh, percent, which apparently failed to impress Wall Street. Uh, total revenues were up 38 billion, uh, which is up 13 percent year on year, even amid the coronavirus. Uh, the big one for us, of course, here on the CloudPod is the Azure revenue, which grew 47 percent, uh, which apparently is bad news. <laughs> I don't know what that how that works, but uh, Azure growth of 47 percent is bad news as it's been steadily declining since Q2 of 2016. Uh, analysts say earnings growth at their size is harder, but the pandemic is also hurting uh, their business. Uh, and I don't know if, sure if it's hurting it in a good way or a bad way, but that's what it is. Well, the percentage always comes down as the denominator gets bigger, but I don't know. I think uh, if they're, st- they're growing pretty rapidly, and if you believe the Gartner report, they're, uh, you know, Azure is still, there's still a gap between Azure and AWS as far as the platform goes, but I would expect them to continue to narrow the gap on features and functionality, which actually I would think leaves headroom for them to continue growing um, at a pretty steady clip for the next several years. I think I think they I'm pretty bullish on it. Is Teams reported as part of this? Uh, it is part of the intelligent cloud, uh, but the Azure growth is not part of it. Okay, because that's uh, if this was included, you know, somewhere to how Google was that includes it, um, it'd be very. It wouldn't be very. Uh, good reporting considering how much they grew yeah so the, it's weird they say report intelligent cloud is a 13.4 billion in revenue which is up 17 percent and they say basically inside of that number re, asia revenue grew 47 percent inside that 17 percent so you know but they don't tell you exactly what that means or what that number was uh so you know it's hard to actually tease out what the actual asia revenue is still a huge growth that's near enough yeah it's good a, enough i half, think half for, percent half of the previous year double so that's that's pretty big. I'm just wondering whether COVID is helping or hurting um, in, in their uh, end-user market with uh, the likes of video conferencing tools that are hosted, things of that nature, or as they move more towards VPNs and cloud. Yeah, I... I you know, definitely, I think it somewhat hurt them a little bit because they've come out and publicly stated that, you know, they have a pecking order of when, you know, who gets... Uh, you know, what type of services and what order and government kind of runs out. And so there, there's a bunch of things they've struggled with, I think, from a scaling perspective in COVID. 
you know, they've had problems getting uh, you know capacity into availability zones uh, before customers were running into problems. So I, I think there's been enough negative press about how they haven't met the demands of COVID that I'm not sure it's entirely been super helpful uh, for net new customers. For existing customers, I think it's been super valuable to them. But I think net new has been a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I mean, we've seen from our customer base, you know, significant growth and with certain COVID specific um, or tangential projects and then other projects just put, get put totally on hold. So I, I don't think it's possible without knowing their customer mix to know whether it's good or uh, helping or hurting right now. Let's move on to uh, Aqua Security. Aqua Security, of course, is uh, a pretty well-known company in the container security space, and then they bought uh, CloudSploit, I believe it is, and have kind of moved into a larger cloud security posture management space. Uh, they've announced a couple new flagship products, including Aqua Wave, uh, which is their SaaS-based offering designed to secure both applications are built and the infrastructure they run on, uh, as well as their open source uh, capabilities have been growing quite a bit. And we mentioned them, of course, here because we just had a fantastic interview with uh, Liz Rice, who is their VP of open source uh, at Aqua Security. You can check that out on our feed. Uh, but lots of great capabilities if you're into the Aqua world. Uh, and that interview with her just dropped and is fantastic. Yeah, it's very cool to see more security offerings go towards the SaaS model, just because it's such a chore to you know upgrade these things and maintain them and feed them and care for them. So it's really nice when you can outsource that to the people who are you know best suited to do that for you, which is great. I love to see it. Yeah, nothing worse than uh, knowing that everything is getting scanned by your security tools, but your security tools have not been implemented correctly or are out of date. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, out of date is never the way to go with security tools. Well, apparently, if you have a uh, open Elasticsearch, Redis, or Mongo database, uh, or even some other rogue database types out there, if they're open to the internet, uh, they might get deleted. Apparently, in a new Meow attack, again, that was Meow, uh, has apparently deleted over 4,000 unsecured databases as of Monday this week. Uh, apparently, this rogue actor is going through and deleting all of the data and replacing it with the uh, with some random text and the word Meow, which is why this is called the Meow attack. Uh, security researchers are in a race to find the open databases before they become meowed. Uh, and if you're performing lack security, you should also be trying to find them before they get meowed. Uh, definitely do that very quickly. Of those 4,000, about 97% of them were Elastic and Mongo. Um, although, you know, like I mentioned, other database technologies have also been attacked, including Cassandra and Zookeeper, Elasticsearch, et cetera. So this is just basically default name and password, people, and just saying, hey, I'm going to put this on the internet. Or Elasticsearch completely open to the internet because... You, know, you don't get authentication unless you have XPAC, and then they have overly open permissions to it, and so you get into it, and you can delete all the data. Delete. I'm just happy to see that you know they're replacing with random text and meow instead of you know K-pop images, which has been you know very prevalent <laughs> lately. <laughs> yes, that is a nice change of pace. I also appreciate that they're just deleting the data. Apparently, they haven't yet exposed the data to the internet. Uh, you know, in the dark web. So if there's just some, some person who's just tired of breaches happening, they're just like, screw you all, I'm writing a code, and I'm just going to go delete the data and replace it uh, without get it, before it gets hacked. I think I don't, I'm okay with that. It's kind of like yeah. a vigilantism, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, and if they do this quickly and diligently enough, no one will ever have enough data in a public uh, database for it to uh, injure them because it'll get deleted too quickly. So you're saying this is a public service then? Yeah. That's how yeah. I feel about it. Yeah, I think it's a public service. I mean, I'm not involved in any way if the FBI is listening in. I have no involvement in this whatsoever. But I, I'm not entirely sure that I, I dislike this. Well, moving on to Cloudflare. Apparently, they uh, have decided they want to eat uh, Amazon serverless lunch, according to this headline. 
Matthew Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare, has announced that his engineers have cocked, uh, sorry, cooked up a competing serverless platform that beats all three cloud giants, including AWS, Azure, and GCP, on both performance and price. Uh, apparently, this builds on their three-year-old workers platform, uh, which is a kind of a serverless on the edge capability that allow you to run something within 50 milliseconds. Uh, this now has been extended to let it run for 15 minutes uh, on the cloud edge. And apparently, their savings on this is 24% cheaper than Azure Functions, 52% cheaper than Google Cloud Functions, and 75% cheaper than AWS Lambda. Uh, now, I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> I feel like Lambda is already pretty cheap. Uh, so I don't know how Cloudflare is going to make money on this, but uh, <laughs> hope for the best. I wonder if it's the play is to make money or if this is just they have all this compute sitting around because they have to be prepared for every DDoS attack in the world and they just may as well like get something for it, you know, kind of like it's already a sunk cost for the infrastructure. So I wonder if the, the, the return on investment is actually much lower than we think. Also, if it's 25% cheaper than Azure Functions but 75% cheaper than AWS Lambda, does that mean that Functions is like a third the price of Lambda? I don't think so. I think that they're comparing directly to Lambda on the edge uh, pricing uh, to get that. Because okay. when, you, when you read through the article, you look through and you're like, yeah, okay, it's not. To, to normal Lambda, it's not that big of a jump. Yeah, okay. it's, it's, it's like 20 cents, 28 cents for a Lambda uh, versus workers on bound is 15 cents for the request. Lambda on the edge is 60%. So, yeah, so 60 minus, you know, the 15 and 60, that's, that's going to be 75% cheaper. But, uh, you know, then there's also some other charges that Amazon has on top of this, like duration and data transfer. And then if there's an API gateway or a DNS query involved, there's some charges for that too. Um, that, you know, CloudFront, uh, sorry, CloudFront has, but uh, Cloudflare does not. So, there you go. Gotta love competition. I mean, Ryan, I think what you're saying is uh, super interesting and cool. If uh, if this is basically just a company that has different economics that's driving their infrastructure, if that allows them to totally compete at a uh, a much more competitive price, this is super neat. And that totally makes sense to integrate your certain functions with the edge. So more options. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered moving on to our aws news for the week so the very first one uh this actually came in after press close for the show this week but it's such a big story that we talked about it anyways uh reinvent as we all predicted here on the show uh, we all get a point for this one, guys. Uh, reInvent will be going digital November 3rd, 30th. Uh, it'll start, and it'll be a three-week digital conference uh, in December. So now you can actually have an answer to all those people who say, what do you mean you're busy all of December with Amazon? Now you actually have three weeks of content to follow. So there yeah. you go. It was inevitable, right? I mean, there's no uh, way it was inevitable. run that event. Yeah. I, I can't believe they actually waited this long. I, you know, And I saw CES on Monday. Uh, went digital as well, and they're in January. And so I was like, well, it's the writing's on the wall that there's no way reInvent's going to happen with, with yeah. CES going digital afterwards. And then uh, they, they did drop the news in the middle of the congressional 
uh, testimony for the big four tech companies, uh, which we won't cover today because uh, they didn't talk about anything with cloud. But uh, <laughs> you know, it was uh, pretty interesting to see them just kind of drop a little nugget in there in the press. So you know, as everyone's talking about Jeff Bezos' testimony, no one really notices that they canceled reInvent and replaced with digital conference. So three weeks is a long time. That's I think Google did the same with the Cloud Next conference. They sort of it, stretched Google's it is out. Eight, Google's is eight weeks. It started two weeks ago. We're in week three this week. Uh, and it's pretty... Sorry, my Google my Google dingus is going at me. <laughs> Let me unplug you. Uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a bit of an issue there. Uh, but yeah, there's eight weeks. I, I just don't understand what, they, what they're what covering in eight weeks that they could have done in you know a week or two content. Or just drop all the videos at one time because they're all pre-recorded. Uh, so I don't really understand. Yeah, I, I've noticed... Because this is the first one that I've really attended that's drawn out like this, uh, and I'm really struggling to to get back around to it after the first week. After the first week, I was really interested in the content; they had my attention. I was searching things out. Second week went by, and I forgot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's the third week. I gotta get caught up. Like, well, I mean, just, and, and just looking at kind of what they're announcing for each week of the conference, it's not. Nothing spectacular that you had to be there for. You can read the press release or the the blog post and get everything you needed to know. So why watch the video? I mean, I can consume written text much much faster than I can consume video content. At least I'll let get a reprieve. Hey, maybe Amazon learned from them. Maybe they actually went to school on this and came up with three weeks based on that result. Well, I think that's really more of a factor of that if you went beyond three weeks, you're now into Christmas. <laughs> yeah, so it, yeah. I think it's I think it's more of a forcing function of the holiday schedule than it is of maybe their desire to do something. Uh, but yeah, hopefully they they do consolidate something down into three weeks and and make something worthwhile out of it. So maybe they have some specialization a little bit around it. But yeah, I'm curious to see what they do. Well, the other uh, other big news from Amazon this week is that they have announced the fourth availability zone in the Seoul region. Uh, this is a new APAC region. Uh, Seoul becomes the fourth region globally to have now four availability zones joining Virginia, Oregon, and Tokyo. Uh, this brings AWS's uh, total infrastructure to 77 AZs across the globe and 24 geographic regions around the world with plans, of course, for nine more AZs and three more regions with Indonesia, Japan, and Spain coming online sometime later. Uh, so that's a pretty big announcement for those of you in Korea who are doing all your K-pop hosting on top of AWS. <laughs> you now have a new availability zone to get that done. Yeah, three is the big one, right? And then after three, the announcements get a little bit, a little less interesting. But obviously, they're growing, so that's good. I mean, I just thought they stopped building data centers with only two availability zones because it's always it's always weird. Yeah, when you only had two, and you're trying to avoid split brain and those kinds of things. So seeing three and all the new ones is nice. And then when they get big, they get this fourth uh, for obvious reasons because you run out of data center space. Yeah, I think they still build the smaller ones. They just call them local zones now. So. Sure, that could be yeah. part of it too. I think a lot of people will uh, will realize their subnet planning was not so good. Um, as this fourth one comes in, they're like, "Oh, we didn't have space for it." Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I've ran into that problem before. You're like, "Oh, there's going to be over three availability zones." Oh, there's a fourth. Oh no, I don't have the subnet space. Uh, yes. I'm usually good until the fifth because I always burn that fourth one because you know subnets you got to do in twos anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that fifth one screws me. Yeah. Luckily, that hasn't happened yet. But when it does, in Virginia, which will be the first one to get five, yeah, yeah. you'll be totally hosed. I so will be. It's true. It'll happen someday. Hopefully, at that point, you'll be at you know in, other, in your next life and not repeating the same sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I was, these are, you know the kind of like really foundational architecture things. You're like, okay, the chance of that happening in you know the five to eight years you're at a company, 
eh, you know, maybe, maybe it happens, but maybe it doesn't. It's my problem in the next company. <laughs> uh, well, uh, does this help out anywhere in the Asia Pack availability zone problems? Uh, I think we talked about this last time you were on the show that you know there's really only the one Sydney region for AWS. I think for the Australians and the New Zealanders, uh, Singapore tends to be the the secondary of choice for latency requirements and everything else like that. Their data protection rights over there are actually really strict, um, so it really works in well for some of the customers that really have um, more restrictions, fintech, etc. Yeah, before Sydney, uh, that was basically the primary region, right? I yeah. Remember back in like yeah, early tens. Another option for us here on the CloudPod, if we ever want to get to video, uh, Amazon has released a new interactive video service, uh, which allows you to add live video directly into your own apps and websites. Uh, the solution makes it simple to integrate interactive, low-latency live video into any application platform, mobile or desktop. Uh, apparently, you set this up uh, through this very simple blog post, walking through the whole setup. You set up your ISV channel in the console, configure your video streaming to point to the cloud, and integrate a player via the player SDK into your website, and uh, off to the races you go. This comes in with a little bit of a price tag to it, a standard service which allows you to stream uh, 8.5 megabits per second, and uh, 1080 resolution is $2 per hour, while the basic plan is limited to 1.5 megabits per second, and 480p is only $0.20 cents per hour. Uh, and then you pay for live video outcasts, and these prices vary by region, uh, but only for the streamer, not for the players. Uh, so do keep that in mind. Uh, so this is pretty expensive if you are using it. Uh, I think I saw something where Corey actually tried to build Twitch on top of this technology, and it cost him like $35 bajillion or something. Oh, no. You know, some crazy <laughs> amount of money. Uh, so maybe maybe take it easy. Uh, I don't honestly know that it would be something I would use for a large volume of video streaming, but uh, something very nice to have out there. Yeah, pretty nice if you're going to run a small event for a short period of time and you don't want to invest in everything to make that happen. Yeah, I reached out to see what the difference between this and Media Live is because it just sounded like the same service. And the answer I got was not a lot. Uh, Media Live has really pushed as the more advanced feature for live broadcasts and huge scale. Media Live is also cheaper in the long run, uh, especially for the inputs. The outputs are roughly equivalent from what I can tell, but it's not an apples to apples comparison. Yeah, it does seem like the service is geared towards like, you know, the TikTok kind of viewership area where I think that, you know, smaller, smaller, more interactive sessions, maybe with smaller audiences is definitely the target audience where, yeah, I agree. Media Live is sort of the broadcast, and the, the, the pro level, if you will. But wasn't it for the Media Live, they actually came out with that box that you could deploy that would basically send your video to the to the cloud for you. You didn't have to do all that monkeying with you know, VLC or any of that kind of stuff to send your live stream. I was a little surprised that this announcement didn't actually include support for that device as well, because that device seems perfect for this, where it's very simple, plug and play, and you're off to the races. But right now, I think it's only limited to Media Live still. Yeah, it is sort of, you know, it's just one of, I, I think it goes to the same thing. Like, it's just their target audience is going to be you know, someone with a laptop or a phone yeah. streaming. Well, then I think, isn't Media Live, is that an Amazon branded or is that an AWS branded? Do, do you guys know? Uh, it's, it's AWS, but it's under the Elemental suite. So it's mm -hmm. Elemental Media Live, gotcha. um, which, which is completely different. Like you, <laughs> you have to be in that world. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah, so typically an Amazon service is more of a higher level service that the Amazon.com platform would use versus AWS, which is more building block based. So maybe that's part of this is, you know, that managed service versus pass kind of thing. I don't know. But mm. uh, yeah, we will be curious to see if they diverge further in the future. But right now they are very similar. Uh, even when I was writing up these show notes, I was like, what? Did we just talk about this with Elemental? <laughs> so, 
All right. Well, the next one is actually a little bit of an interesting one to me. Uh, so apparently they released the CDK for Terraform now in preview. Uh, apparently, you know, use, use tools like CloudFormation or YAML. Uh, or, of course, Terraform uh, as kind of the new de facto standard for multi-cloud. Uh, but Amazon you know, has basically been saying that customers want more coding capabilities for their CDK and for Terraform and for all these CloudFormation things. So the CDK was, of course, the first one released in 2019. Uh, and now with this CDK for Terraform, this is being announced, or this developer preview is out. They call it the CDK TF uh, and lets you define application infrastructure with a programming language uh, you, that you know and love while leveraging the hundreds of providers and modules. Of course, if the ones you know and love have to be TypeScript or Python, uh, just so you guys know. Uh, <laughs> and this is a collaboration with HashiCorp and AWS. Uh, they did partner together to build this KCDK, uh, and this is now available to you today out in the world to play with. So you're going to write that CDK code, and then uh, it's going to output your Terraform. Well, so it's, it's interesting, actually. This is because... Uh, Ryan and I were arguing about this when it first got announced because <laughs> he was like, this is terrible. I don't know why I would do this. Uh, and then I said, no, I think you're, you're misunderstanding. And so basically the, apparently, uh, and I didn't know this, this is something I learned from the HashiCorp blog about this, is that Terraform supports not only their HCL, but also supports a JSON format, uh, which no one uses because, of course, why would you do that when you have HCL? Uh, so the, the CDK actually outputs the JSON format uh, which then you can then modify to plug it into TFE into different technologies you want to use for the backend state management, as well as all the other pipeline type stuff and Sentinel rules uh, can all be applied just like normal. Uh, you know, so that's kind of nice, and that's something I didn't really know existed in Terraform until this announcement, uh, which yeah, I guess I just was not paying attention. It's still terrible, by the way. Like you, you convinced no one in that argument. It's this is still not how you know. Like now, I'm going to have not only bugs in my application, but I'm going to have bugs in my deployment logic where I've deployed 600 machines because I don't know how recursion works. Yeah, I, I would agree. Although I know there's sticky situations where we've had to uh, write really, really complex uh, uh, stuff in HCL to just to deal with like variable manipulation. But, you know, if you, <laughs> I guess if used responsibly, a tool like this could could pinpoint those cases and, and simplify code. But it's a huge amount of rope to hang yourself with because, yeah, you could think of all sorts of cool ways to build things, and then now you have to test all the edge cases. And that's why um, I think that's sort of the point of Terraform is that it doesn't allow you to do a lot of things where you'd have to test all of the edge cases because cases, that's built into the tool to do that. What I found interesting is that this is basically a carbon copy of what Pulumi does. Pulumi takes the Terraform providers and codifies that into a bunch of different languages so although they're not calling it out directly it seems like a direct competitor to them directly from HashiCorp which is really interesting that was my first thought too and it's but it's only sort of indirectly from HashiCorp since it's a partnership with AWS so it, I, I thought that was more interesting you know that this is sort of an AWS and HashiCorp launch against Pulumi like if I was Pulumi I'd be really angry right now <laughs> yeah absolutely I don't think they're very excited for this <laughs> I did manage to get this into Forma 2 day one because it is just a derivative of Terraform. Forma 2 being the uh, existing resources to infrastructure as code tool, uh, open source. Go ahead and download that. It's my tool. <laughs> shameless <laughs> self-promotion. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the best kind of promotion, the shameless self-promotion. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I saw that actually when I, I think I, you and I were texting last week uh, when I was having some problems and... Uh, I saw that you had you know, not only Pulumi support, which I didn't know you had at the time, and then also I saw that you already had some of this code in here for uh, the CDK, which I thought was pretty great. So, yeah, nice job. Yeah. Again, 
way to go uh, giving all that free services to uh, Amazon for them. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they send you a nice Christmas gift. He's doing it for the customers. Doing it for the customers, yeah. Mm-hmm. I still haven't used your Honeycode, though, yet. I, I need to get back to Honeycode. I, just, oh. can't, I can't, can't motivate myself. Let's, <laughs> let's not start on that. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, if you would like to put those CDK, uh, either Terraform or CloudFormation, into a pipeline, uh, they are announcing the CDK pipelines in preview. This is a construct library for the CDK to make it easy to set up simple or complex continuous delivery pipelines with AWS Code Pipeline, which I like a pipeline for CDK, just not with Code Pipeline. Maybe with Jenkins? <laughs> Jenkins would be better. Can I get Jenkins? I don't know. <laughs> uh, with CDK pipelines, dev teams can define and share pipelines as code patterns for deploying their applications. Uh, you can add stages to your pipeline to deploy your application across multiple AWS accounts or additional AWS regions, uh, and this is all available to you out of the box. Apparently, this has the ability to be a self-mutating pipeline, which uh, I thought was a strange sentence. I hadn't heard that word, uh, but maybe Ian, who had some comments on this, can tell me what a self-mutating CDK pipeline is. Yeah, so internally, we call this a meta-pipeline. So you you initially deploy this pipeline manually, but at the very start or at the very end of the pipeline, there's a step that will update its own resource, which is very cool. It means you can programmatically make the new pipelines and all itself. The problem with that is, though, there's some minor traps where if you get that wrong, you can really stop a lot of work going on at the same time. So use with caution. It's like when you set a path variable, but, that, but you forget to uh, accidentally add the existing path variables to your path. That kind of oh, thing. you're screwed <laughs> if that happens. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that's good. I, I mean, I, I like to see the pipelines. I like to see it without code pipeline required, but, you know, hey, baby steps, maybe in the right direction. Yeah, I think pipelines are required for all the curmudgeons like me who are, you know, I'm like, well, but how do you test these things? You know, like if I'm already, I'm already sort of, you know, skeptical of you know cdk and, and not having a templatized version of my infrastructure and so this is you know this is good to have if you're going to programmatically generate that aws has launched the general availability release of contact lens which is a set of artificial intelligent features to help optimize the contact center of enterprises using the amazon connect service uh, the set of ai features uh, labels you to uh, sorry allows you to analyze support calls for insights and how they can improve service quality uh, and provide all kinds of insights into call uh, sentiment, call routing, etc. So you can take proactive actions as a manager or as another call center agent to address customer complaints. The contact lens does not require any coding apparently, which I find hard to believe, but apparently that's what they say. And there's a great quote here from Larry Augustin, AWS Vice President of Productivity Applications. Amazon Connect has grown very quickly in its first few years as customers find it's very attractive to use the same contact center technology, along with the high-scale, strong-performance, low-cost, and embedded AI that Amazon has used to scale Amazon.com in its first 25 years. So that's available to you today. Uh, We did talk about this a little bit when it got uh, released into beta, uh, but this is now generally available to make all of your contact center AI needs complete. One of the interesting quotes I read from the launch... Uh, contact lens for Amazon Connect will allow supervisors to be alerted to issues, like when an agent is unable to help a frustrated com- uh, customer, giving them the ability to intervene, which means I'm going to start swearing on my AWS support calls a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> start yeah. calling them names, but not, but not mean names, just nice names. Like, yeah, all you got to say is I'd like to speak to a manager, right? And it's just going to pop up an alert somewhere. That's going to be great. Or send you to the non-manager manager. Oh, yeah. You can talk to Bob, the manager, who's not. 
recursion of bots at that point. I wish I knew a lot more about Connect. I mean, it seems like it's taking the world by storm uh, in contact center space. Everyone's talking about Connect and all the amazing things Connect can do for them and why it's great. And uh, it's definitely an area. You know, last time I dealt with a call center, uh, I decided I didn't want to deal with call centers anymore. Uh, but you know, it, it definitely seems interesting, and there's a lot of interest in this technology in particular and how it's helping companies that modernize their whole support flow. Yeah, I think it's more, you know, the reason why it's taken things by storm is just because it's so easy to use and set up. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily do anything that other companies don't, you know, like it's, but it is sort of like this easy all-in-one package and then it's so extensible because of its native plug-and-play with other Amazon services. So it's, you know, it's it wins on that demo appeal because you really can get this thing up and running in no time at all. Still no APIs though. Still no APIs, yeah. Well, if it had APIs, then they couldn't say it's no code. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for them to integrate into step function. So you can manually kind of configure that in the product today. Like you can you can have send stuff to Lambda, absolutely. So it's but you sort of have to you write the Lambda and then separately through the UI link it to that Lambda. It's a little clunky. Well, the, uh, the Amazon Graviton 2 chips-based uh, instances have now added the local NVMe-based SSD storage. This is the D variant. Uh, these are all now available to you in all of the Amazon regions that offer you Graviton 2. Uh, yeah, this one has a ton of depth uh, and it details how amazing and revolutionary Graviton is, so you have all of that type of data involved. I don't know what I was saying with that last sentence. I don't know. <laughs> I think I had a reference to an arcoid cut. Because <laughs> I think there was one, that, I think the one before that was like very lightweight, like nothing in it. And this one here actually has a bunch of details that you need to know. So yeah. There you go. But uh, yeah, it is out and available. Uh, we talked about this many times in the past. So I won't belabor the point, but uh, the Graviton 2 instances are continuing to expand their use case all across the platform. How, I mean, how long until the, ol the only no-brainer decision of what instance type to pick is going to be a Graviton? On powered one. I mean, if you're using a compiled language, I would say it's not a bad choice to go that way now. Um, you know, if you're using you know compiled languages, it's a little bit more uh, difficult to use because <laughs> you have to recompile. And there's not a lot of computers out there that can do that that aren't servers until at least the Apple, the new Apple uh, silicone chips come out on their new Macs. Then you'll have at least a local desktop environment for that. But uh, you know, that's what Power of the Cloud I guess gives you is that you can do all of that you know from the comfort of a cloud console and a cloud IDE. AWS is uh, lowering the price for Amazon RDS for SQL Server Enterprise. Uh, this includes the multi-AZ configuration for both on-demand and RI purchases. Uh, on-demand prices have been reduced by about 25% on average across the latest generation instance classes. Uh, and the new rate will take effect on the 1st of July for on-demand and the 1st of August for RI purchases. Uh, typically, RI purchases are not refundable, but uh, Amazon is making a special exception for customers with existing RDS instances RIs. And for a limited time, you can exchange previously purchased RDS SQL RI for a new enterprise multi-AZ reserved instance. Uh, and you get a credit that gets applied to the new RI purchase. So you're basically resetting your purchase. Uh, so if you only have a couple months left on your current one, uh, you know maybe just let that run out and then buy a brand new savings plan or something else. But uh, this is out there available for you today. If you're using SQL Server, this is a humongous savings uh, for you as SQL Server costs a small fortune. Yeah, I mean, uh, you think they got a like re-upped with Microsoft? Obviously, yeah, they, they hit a they passed a certain tier of of volume licensing, and so they, they yeah. moved to like the you know the the new tier, and they got a great discount. They passed that <laughs> to you. That's yeah, it's a little like. interesting. Uh, maybe they just decided they want to take less margin on it. I don't know. 
right? Yeah, or is it just competition-driven to make sure they don't lose whole workloads to Azure based on the SQL Server pricing? Well, we talked about Azure has done a lot of press releases recently about how much cheaper their service is and how much better it performs for SQL Server workloads. Uh, I think that's maybe, you know, some of it's probably around that and the optics of Google and, and Azure, you know, trying to go after the same Windows workloads they are. And if they can make that cost a little bit better for SQL, that's, that brings people to the to the place. Yeah. Yeah, it's very surprising. I do remember when Microsoft caught bring, bring your own licensing for uh, RDS. That was... That was a pretty hostile time between Amazon and Microsoft. You had to imagine that Amazon is a very, very large customer of Microsoft. <laughs> and so while, yes, there's one side of the business that's just like, no, we don't want you to just kill Azure with your stuff. There's another side of the business that's on the licensing revenue side that's like, yes, we love them. They're amazing. They have spent bajillions of dollars on licensing with us. <laughs> it's, uh, that's one of those awkward, awkward relationships. I still feel like this announcement is more... Uh, competitive than cooperative in that they're concerned about losing entire workloads to Azure um, because of the SQL component. And this takes away a significant portion of that concern for the customer and allows them to put the whole workload on Amazon instead of the whole workload on Azure. And data sticky, you know, like, you know, yeah. the database layer, once you have that data in that cloud, you know, it's a lot harder to get it out. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I think this is gonna. This is a move in order to, you know, enterprises of a certain age, of a certain size, to to make it more enticing to to move to AWS. Commvault is data management done differently. Commvault knows how important your data is to your business, enabling you to learn more about your data, manage your data, move your data securely and efficiently, and quickly recover your data to meet critical business needs. Available as a cloud-based software as a service solution, deployed on your existing on-premise virtualization environment, or as an appliance-based offering, their simple and centralized web interface lets you synchronize your data between on-premise data centers and your cloud environments, keeping downtime due to failures at a minimum. With Commvault, you can translate your virtual workloads to a cloud provider automatically, greatly simplifying the move to the cloud or your disaster recovery solution to the cloud. Commvault supports over 40 different cloud vendors, giving you the ability to use the cloud that is right for your business. To learn how Commvault can help you manage your data differently, save money, and reduce risk, head to www.thecloudpod.net slash Commvault to find out more and schedule your free trial of their SaaS offering. Well, Google has been busy. Of course, it's the uh, third week of Google Cloud Next, and so they've been announcing things that aren't really that exciting, but uh, they're out there, and we should talk about them. The first is the new external HTTPS load balancing integration for serverless offerings like App Engine, Cloud Functions, and Cloud Run. Uh, so you can now use the same fully featured enterprise-grade uh, load balancing capability as the, as the rest of the Google Cloud to access your Cloud Function. Uh, with this, you can now assign a single global AnyCast IP address to your service, manage a certificate and TLS configuration, and integrate it with Cloud CDN and Cloud Run for functions to load balance across your regions. Uh, this will also be adding the Identity Aware Proxy and the Cloud Armor in the next few months to this capability as well. And this is all possible with the NEG feature we talked about last week, or the network endpoint groups uh, that we talked about last week here on the show for Google that was announced during the keynote. One of the great things with this feature is you can now load balance against multiple different backend types from storage, virtual machines, Cloud Run, and GKE, uh, all just with routing protocols in your load balancer. You guys are stunned with amazement. Stunned, stunned, blown away. I, I, I have. You're already you're already rewriting all of your applications. I can sense it. Yes, <laughs> yes. Everything will be serverless, compute at the edge from now on. Even your databases. Just even my databases. 
You, if you uh, if you put the database on the internet publicly without authentication, you might get me out too. So yeah. oh, you know through the HTTPS load balancer. That's that's crazy. Good. That's Maybe good. we could do that to save money on pruning our databases. Oh, potentially. It's getting a little too expensive. Just put it on the public internet and it'll get purged for you. Yeah. yeah. That mercy. There you go. <laughs> I would not recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> Do not try this at home. <laughs> uh, the next blog post uh, is a great overview of gRPC and Traffic Director, which is uh, kind of their entryway into the service mesh. Uh, you know, and so the first part of it's a pretty standard uh, Google blog post, just kind of talking about why you might use it, and what the architectural decisions are, the trade-offs you want to make. Uh, but they did sync in here a interesting announcement, uh, which is they're announcing support for XDS API support to the most recent version of gRPC. Uh, these are the same open source APIs used by popular Envoy proxy. This enables the XDS control plane, uh, like Traffic Director, for example, to configure gRPC clients with service information such as endpoint address, health status, priority, uh, based on proximity and capacity, and which policies to use when calling out to the service. Uh, and this also enables the GCP-managed native gRPC health checks uh, for your gRPC application. So this is basically bringing service mesh uh, to your gRPC application, but in a slightly smarter way, so you actually get some endpoint details uh, without having to do a second lookup uh, through a service catalog or some other uh, service discovery type capability. So overall, this is pretty nice in general. Yeah, I really like that addition. Like it sort of changes the whole paradigm of service mesh where, you know, you sort of have like a control plane that routes traffic, you know, best based on incoming traffic. This sort of reverses it a little bit where that incoming traffic is coming with metadata, um, which is kind of neat. Um, you know, I'd like to play around with that and see, you know, how I could use that in different ways. How much app transformation, though? Probably a lot. Yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, with service mesh, you're already sort of, you know, a lot of, you know, if you got a, a legacy app, then it's a whole brand new world. You know, you're probably moving to containers to take, you know, take advantage of orchestration and the whole thing. So, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really doing enough with gRPC yet to uh, really understand all of the nuances and service mesh and all that. It's an area that I'd, okay. I'd like to get more playing with, maybe. Maybe side project time. Yeah, yeah. Play with it and see what it can do. It's interesting that they have the managed uh, gRPC health checks now available, something that AWS application load balancers still can't do, despite the fact they say they have HTTP2 support. They don't tell you is that that downgrades into multiple HTTP11 requests at the origin. You have to do a lot of digging to figure that one out. <laughs> Yeah. So they so they present HTTP two to the public endpoint, and then when they cross the the barrier to the backend endpoint, they're actually breaking it down to one point one. That's how it works. Oh, that's lovely. Wow. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you uh, are an enterprise and you are under increased pressure to migrate to the cloud potentially due to COVID, uh, Google is here to help you solve this challenge with the launch of the new Google Cloud Rapid Assessment and Migration Program, or RAMP for short, which is a holistic end-to-end -end migration program that enables a simpler and faster path to success for customers and partners. Uh, this is based on their experience migrating other customers, and the program is designed to provide predictable steps and repeatable outcomes across four categories, assess, plan, migrate, and optimize. Uh, and there are six key pillars in assess, plan, migrate, and optimize, including guidance, training, tools, partners, Google Cloud professionals, and the most important part, offers, uh, which is money they'll throw at you to move to Google Cloud or have your partner help you move to Google Cloud. This is very similar to a program that Amazon has called the MAP program or the Migration Acceleration Program. Uh, in fact, I'd almost call it a copycat, but... 
It has a, little, a couple interesting things that uh, is nice. It has a much bigger focus on guidance and training and tools than I think the map does, uh, which is a plus, uh, as well as does have uh, conversations here about Google Cloud certifications and much, much more. So I think it's a pretty good program. It's a much better name, like ramp over map. <laughs> much better. Yeah. This isn't FedRAMP. No, no, <laughs> completely no. different thing. FedRAMP is a is a whole different world that we don't want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, the, it just what? it's a reminder with these these programs. If you at a reasonably sized company with a reasonably sized workload, uh, it's really important that you talk to these vendors and understand what programs are there because they're they're really making it. Uh, you know, this is this is their key focus is getting workloads on the platform. That's the biggest hurdle for them and. Uh, you don't want to. You don't want to end up doing all this on your own, not taking advantage of these programs. And they can be a considerable amount of money that they help contribute to your migration because they, yeah. they know they'll get it back from you once you're once you're on the cloud. They know that they'll be able to get more and more money out of you over time. So they are willing to put up some money to help your migration story. So definitely take advantage of the program. And you can do that by reaching out to you know our friends at Foghorn, uh, who have all access to all these kinds of programs for you. We do, we do, and yeah, we've had lots of customers. Um, we've had customers who've you know had great experiences with decreasing the cost to get to the cloud. We've um, hopefully helped them do a great job and made it fast and smooth. But um, you know the other thing is we've, we run into companies all the time that uh, didn't know about these programs and spent a lot of time and money uh, migrating, and we're pretty disappointed they didn't uh, know about them when they were moving. So good, good to know about them and ask about them before you move. And yeah, even you even have- if you've used the program to buy. You have to migrate one application the first time, and you have other applications you like to now migrate. Um, you can also go back and talk to them again, and sometimes they'll, because you only focus on one workload at a time, they might also, also offer you offers for additional workloads. So definitely take those out. It doesn't mean you're going all in on one cloud or all in on one solution. Uh, so you can kind of break it up into either your project or actually your whole infrastructure, depending on how you want to attack. I like how the, the six pillars of ramp sort of correlate to the seven stages of grief. <laughs> <laughs> Every cloud migration should go through all stages. Yes. Uh. <laughs> well, the other stages of grief come from the security world, and Google's here to help you uh, with the never-ending battle of emerging threats, keeping your websites and applications secure, uh, and they comment that is a constant challenge, which it is. To help, GCP has released many features, including WAF rules, geo-based access controls, custom rule languages, support for CDN origin and hybrid origins, and as part of the Google Cloud Next 20 on-air, that's a mouthful, they have a few more new things for you, uh, including the beta release of Cloud Armor Managed Protection Plus, which is a bundle of products and services that help protect your internet-facing applications for a predictable monthly subscription fee. The Google-curated named IP lists are available as a beta, and expanded set of pre-configured WAF rules by launching beta rules for remote file inclusion, local file inclusion, and remote code ex- execution. Uh, so all those, uh, the one I'm actually the most excited about and the most jealous of is named IP lists. Yeah. Google-curated rule list containing a pre-configured list of IPs, uh, and some of the ones that they have initially are Fastly, Cloudflare, and Imperva. And so basically, if you think about the problem is, if you're using Cloudflare or using other CDN service or Imperva or, you know, Zscaler or any of these services that are SaaS, you know, they have their own IP addresses that you have to whitelist into your environment. And if they're massively scaled cloud-native companies, as they should be, uh, there's a lot of them. (laughs) And they don't always publish all of them. And they change, because they're also using cloud services, too. So this named IP list gives you access to a predefined vetted list of IPs from Google of services like Cloudflare. So you can allow access to your origin only from Cloudflare servers, for example, uh, which is pretty important in a CDN as your front door policy. Yeah, this huge heavy lift that we don't have to do anymore. It's great. 
yeah, I this one I would love for Amazon and Azure to copy very quickly. Please do it. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, some of this, you know, my first interaction to WAF like years ago was figuring out how much I had to do in order to apply rules. And it's like, how do you expect me to know these things? I'm not a security engineer. And so, you know, you had to build build all the logic yourself. For and so, having the the managed protection rules and products is super key for people who may not know all the best ways to protect their app and just kind of want to turn it on. Curated nameless, same thing. Like, I'm not going to go, you know, like configure all the IP address lists, keep that up to date. It's not going to happen. Yep, it's great. The only other provider I know that does the named IP list is Akamai with the Kona Site Defender product. Um, that's always been helpful to get rid of, you know, Tor IP addresses and known proxies and things like that. So definitely sounds like a targeting enterprise CDM market. Yeah, for sure. Again, Amazon, you could add this one to your list. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> I would use it immensely. Uh, the other big announcement from Google Cloud Next 20 on air is uh, delivering infrastructure for all your apps. Uh, and so this is a very long post kind of summarizing some of the things they talked about in the keynote as well as some recent announcements. But uh, they did highlight several new things that are pretty important. The first is they are, uh, you know, Google Cloud is increasing in size. And of course, a Google Cloud that's a larger in size requires very robust networking. Uh, and so they're announcing the new Grace Hopper cable that will run between the US, the UK, and Spain. Uh, when it comes online in 2022, it'll be one of the first new transatlantic cables to go live since 2003, uh, delivering 16 fiber pairs of capacity, powering a variety of Google services, including Meet, Gmail, and the GCP Cloud. Uh, they also announced a new partnership with Cisco uh, for SD-WAN Cloud Hub with Google Cloud, as well as a new secure, easy way to connect Google Cloud services with your private VPC with the Private Service Connect product. Uh, this is very similar to uh, VPC endpoints. Uh, if you're familiar in the Amazon nomenclature, uh, this is now available to you as well from uh, GCP. Uh, the Private Service Connect, though, is interesting. They do complement their service directory, and together you can easily and securely connect to and manage services at scale. Uh, as well as several additional enhancements to the persistent disk product portfolio, including balanced performance and extreme PD or streamed uh, persistent disk capabilities. So there are some new EBS-type offerings from Google as well in their persistent disk product to check out if you're using those, uh, all available to you in the Google Cloud infrastructure world. So uh, that Google Grace Hopper cable, pretty cool. I don't know about you guys. Why only 16 pairs? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was wondering about that as well. Um, I assume that when they say pairs like that, they're different type of pair than I, I think they are. <laughs> They've got to be much, much bigger pairs of cables that probably actually have thousands and thousands of fibers inside each of them. But yeah, you'd hope. I would hope so, because it seems like a lot of expense to run 16 fiber pairs. <laughs> Who would ever need more need than it. 64K of RAM? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gonna need a bigger boat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you guys are waiting for much better transatlantic networking to Australia. <laughs> but, There's uh, quite a few out there. Uh, yeah, there are definitely a few, some, but uh, I feel like Australia and uh, many areas of Asia Pac actually have really terrible networking still. Especially like one that surprises me the most is still India. I mean, in India, you're either going, you know, to the European region and then exiting to the internet over there, or you're going, you know, through Singapore or through one of the other Asian countries. But like, it's it's very limited, and the bandwidth is super expensive. So. I would like to see the Asia Pac region get more connectivity. Google, if you're going to build these cables, let's let's get real. That's where we really need them. Yeah, I used to sling the Niner games uh, when I was living in Sydney, and uh, I got like like four pixels. Is what I felt like I was getting when I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, you know, nice to see that I've got the VPC uh, service connectivity too. That's great for uh, reducing your your attack vector uh, for any of these services on the Google Cloud if you're taking advantage of their their object storage or any of the other things. So it's definitely good too. Well, on to Azure. Uh, they've announced the new Azure Well-Architected Framework. Uh, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you guys, uh, but it sounds very much like the AWS Well-Architected Framework, uh, and that's maybe because it is. Uh, you know, but of course, a good fund of Microsoft, they love their acronym. So I'm trying to figure out the acronym for this. Is this the, the AWAF or the AWAF or the, the A-WAF or the Microsoft Azure? So it's the MOAF. The MOAF. I don't know. You guys, you guys work that out with me. I don't, I don't know. But, yeah, they, they love those things. And you can't use WAF because uh, that's what already Amazon already uses that one. So you can't have that one. Sorry, Microsoft. Come up with a new acronym. Uh, the five pillars in the Azure architectural best practices are cost management, operational excellence, performance efficiency, reliability, and security. I'm pretty hmm. sure those are identical to the AWS ones. What do you guys that's think? strange. Yeah, it looks exactly the same as far as best practices go. But, I mean, they're so high level that, you know, how are you going to choose something else? Uh, they've, they've made a change. It's not cost management. It's cost optimization. So uh, it's definitely original. Totally Completely original. different. Oh, yeah, totally, completely different. Totally. <laughs> I mean, I guess Azure's saying they, they manage the cost versus just optimize it. So, I mean, I guess that's better. I don't know. Uh, you know, if you are interested in this for Azure, though, these are good practices to follow. And, you know, as much as fun as we're giving them for ripping off Amazon, exactly. Um, if you're using Azure, you should be following these practices. And so do check them out in the Azure Architecture Center. Uh, take the Azure Well Architecture Review quiz on their Microsoft assessment uh, and learn how to build great solutions with the MOAF on Microsoft Live. <laughs> yeah. Bless you. All jokes <laughs> aside, though, you know, these, uh, even if you already know mostly everything, it's so much easier to start your standards from here, then start from scratch. Oh, so, for sure. That's yeah, a good thing. And, and again, if you're just because it didn't exist, you know, it already exists in Amazon. For those of you who are on Azure and are listening to our show, you know, it's new to you, and so you should be very happy because this is great. It's great advice. It's great things you should be doing, and I recommend it for anybody. But uh, it, it will be fun to just make fun of them a little bit because you could have they could have done a little bit more to make it less less copy paste. <laughs> I think right now equal is good enough, right? That, that's the first step. Get equal. Yep. Then differentiate. Or differentiate first and then get equal. I don't know. <laughs> Seems like the GCP model. Yeah. Well, if you uh, are trying out the beta or limited release of Azure Shared Disks, and the, you know, they've now made that generally available to you, uh, this is just one more of the 1 million file disk solutions that AWS Azure is now available to you. Uh, you know, between premium, blob, ultra premium, blob, you know, all the different variations. That's why I say there's a million of them. The shared disk is the only shared block storage that supports both Windows and Linux-based clustering or HA applications, allowing you to run things like cluster databases, parallel file systems, persistent containers, and machine learning applications without compromise on well-known deployment patterns for failover and HA. Uh, in addition, they're also announcing some additional improvements to storage in general that you should be aware of. Uh, for single instance VMs using premium SSD and ultra disks, uh, the SLA is now 99.9%. Uh, and you can get 99.5% for standard SSD and an SLA of 95% for a single instance VM using standard HDD disk or magnetic disk. Uh, and you can now export and import your data securely over a private virtual network with Azure Private Link Integration and achieve higher performance and cost savings with their new performance tiers. Uh, so again, uh, one of the things I don't like about Azure <laughs> is I don't like the fact that I have to think about ultra premium disks and the SLAs that are now different for all of these different types of disks. And I have to, that's just a level of complexity I don't want in my cloud vendor. But for those of you who like those knobs to play with, they're available to you from Azure today. That's why it's cost management, 
right? Instead of pass optimization. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Ian, I think you had a reminder here about this because uh, Amazon released a similar feature, which we, we said is, you need to be very careful with. Uh, I think you have similar concerns with this one. Yeah, so Amazon have the similar feature. They call it EBS multi-attach. This uh, shared block storage is both the same, but you have to make sure that the application is designed to handle this because if you try and run two applications that try to write to the same block store, the pointer will get corrupted and you'll lose all your data pretty quickly. And it's not an easy thing to recover from. I can tell you that. Very, very sharp edges that have long, long-lasting scars on that one. Uh, yeah, you definitely want to use something like Veritas file system on top of this or some yeah. other type of uh, you know, system that can support multi-write and coordination of those multiple writes across uh, consumers. It is funny that it took so long to get there, though, given the fact that shared uh, block storage in the data center has been around a long time. Well, you know who beat both of them was Oracle, <laughs> who, had, who offers you iSCSI disk attachment. So technically, they had it first. There you go. The Azure uh, Hyperconverged stack has been updated. The next generation of the Azure stack HCI on Azure services combines the price performance of hyperconverged infrastructure with native Azure hybrid capabilities, all while letting enterprises leverage existing skill sets. The latest version gives customers the latest security, performance, and hybrid enhancements, uh, and you can leverage your Azure resources side-by-side -side with the Azure stack HCI in the same portal as your Azure cloud resources. Uh, Azure likes giving customers flexibility, and they say that an eight-core server will less than 16 VMs uh, the upfront cost of Azure Stack HCI would be 2.5 times less than other HCI solutions on the market. Of course, they didn't tell us who those HCI solutions were, uh, but I assume they're referring to uh, something from UCS or Nutanix or some of those guys. Uh, in addition to the Azure Stack HCI, includes no cost extended security updates for Windows Server 2008 VMs running on top of it, uh, which you know is actually an interesting conversation because this is one of the Azure's big tricks right now is that if you move your Windows Server 2008 workloads to either their cloud or to apparently now this Azure Stack HCI, they'll continue to support it. But how do they actually restrict the security updates if you're not using the Azure Cloud or this Azure Stack HCI? I feel like those patches will get out somehow, right? So do I really need to do this? What do you guys think? So this would be, what, through a custom SCCM endpoint, I assume? I assume. So, like, they haven't really detailed how that works. They just yeah. say that they'll support you when you call them when the, you're on this infrastructure. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, surprising that security updates. If it's feature updates, I could understand. Yeah. It, it's just a weird, it's a weird wrinkle. Like, hey, we know Enterprise, you're, you're on an old, outdated version of Windows that we deprecated, but, you know, hey, we'll help you out if you just bring that workload to, to Azure that none other clouds can do for you. It's, just, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing, and I don't know that I necessarily like it. I don't know that I dislike it, but it's weird. Uh, you can buy have, like just a team of people sitting around like it's the reserve team, right? Just managing 2008. <laughs> like we we thought we were getting office because we were going end of life, and they're like, no, no, you're the you're gonna stay behind until <laughs> the last person walks out that door. You're here patching it, <laughs> and they haven't really been very clear either on how long they're gonna continue to support 2008. Because there's gotta be at some point where it just has diminishing returns. I I can't I have to imagine. Uh, if you're interested in an Azure Stack HCI, you uh, run this on any type of uh, server infrastructure you can buy from like Lenovo or uh, Lenovo or Intel. Uh, Dell has it as well as HPE. So if this is something you're interested, in, reach out to your typical uh, hardware vendor who will also try to sell you their their HCI product first. But <laughs> once you once you convince them, no, no, I want the Azure one, they will uh, help you out with that. Of course, uh, many enterprises are moving their data to Microsoft Azure Blob Storage uh, because you know the blob gets bigger all the time. Uh, and now they will support uh, NFS 3.0 uh, for you uh, for Azure Blob integration. 
At the same time, they continue to run many apps on different storages using the NFS protocol. And to help break down data silos, Azure Blob Storage releasing it to support the preview of NFS 3.0 protocol. So there you go. NFS access to Blob Storage will enable our customers to preserve their legacy data access methods when migrating the underlying storage to Azure Blob Storage is from the press release. So if you uh, don't want to get cloud native, Azure's got your back. So while you can run your legacy app on NFS on the Blob, should you? Yeah. Seriously. I mean, probably not. I mean, I, I think you should get more cloud native and probably move to object storage on Blob, but you know, you, you do what you want to do. Yeah. I have too many horror stories about stale NFS mounts in production to, to ever look in that direction ever again. It, it amazes me how little adoption NFS 3.0 got <laughs> compared. You know, isn't there also NFS 4.0 out now as well? Like, it, it seems like everyone's oh. really far behind on this one. Yeah. Mm. Good old NFS. What are you going to do? Well, that's it for the main show topics. Peter, you want to take us to the lightning round? Amazon SQS now supports new console experience. I, I realize you're waiting for me because my name is first, but I thought you were still going to go first like you always do. <laughs> no, <laughs> I waited for you. Uh, and I've totally lost what I was going to say now. No, no, <laughs> you want me to go first? I can go first. Yes, apparently. <laughs> Well, as long as this console tells me how many messages are in the queue, that's the only thing I care about for SQS. I still got nothing. Oh. I, got it. <laughs> well, I know. There's a lot of lead up. Uh, <laughs> I only took right. them 16 years. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> New Amazon Elastic File System console simplifies file system creation and management. Which it desperately needed. So, you know, thank goodness for this. But. Uh, you know, what I don't like about this is that they made the change while I was in the middle of working on a project and all of a sudden my GUI changes. That's, that's not so fun. <laughs> like, my, like I have literally lost it and I've been coding way too long and this just changed. And it also happened to be around the same time that the Terraform documentation got updated and that really threw me for a loop and I, I just had to walk away. It was, it was a rough night. Up next on Justin Does a Thing, he slowly descends into madness. Yes, exactly. <laughs> AWS Global Accelerator launches one-click acceleration for application load balancers. Meaning it's never been easier to spend a whole bunch of money with one click. Yeah, it's one click, right? So you just spam the clicky thing until it does what you want. Yeah, exactly. That's what I always do with computers. And because Amazon owns the patent and trademark on one click, they can use this. So. <laughs> are, we going to, uh, are we going to invent click, uh, clicking as code? I think that's what we need. I think that exists. Announcing automatic backups for Amazon Elastic File System. Because when you're paying a bajillion dollars to store your data on Elastic File System, you want to back it up. And you want not to think about that backup. Just just do it. Mm -hmm. I like it. Java 11 for Azure Functions is now available in preview. Unless you're running Java 5, 6, 7, and 8, we'll also support those on Azure because we support all the dead products. <laughs> what about IIS 6? Can we still Yep, we that? can do that too. No problem. Yeah. We got that for you here at Azure where we just want your business no matter what. AWS X-Ray.NET auto-instrumentation agent is now available in beta. Now you'll be able to trace that your application really needs to be written on a different framework. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, if, they, if it wasn't auto-instrumented, it's not going to get instrumented for me. So <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I wasn't going to do it myself, so I appreciate this feature. Announcing AWS serverless application model, SAM, CLI, is now generally available for production use. 
but please, for the love of God, no one use this for production. <laughs> AWS Code Build now supports accessing build environments with AWS Session Manager. Still doesn't tell me why my build doesn't work. I mean, just I go there and it just shows me the task is hung. It doesn't help me in any way. Azure SQL Database uh, performance optimization change to default settings is coming soon. So when all of your really basic queries start performing like garbage, uh, just know it's this announcement where they took the max parallelism from zero to eight by default, which now means that uh, your simple queries now get split across eight processors and have to now combine the results set back together before it displays it to you. So you're welcome. So, I mean, performance optimization is your definition at subject to that. Sounds good to me. Nobody else? Anyone? Is your <laughs> SQL database? No? No. Amazon Elastic File System increases per client throughput by 100% from 250 megabytes per second to 500 megabytes per second. Just going to show that all the time they told us that EFS was built for HCP uh, workloads it was a lie because HCP <laughs> workloads need so much more performance than that. Yeah. Yeah, this is increased by 100%. It's still 300% less than I need. Yeah, who said HPC with EFS? That, that's interesting. That was, when they first announced it, that was, that's why they said it was so expensive. They're like, well, it was designed for HPC workloads and for, you know, we, don't, we didn't actually mean it to be an NFS service on Amazon. That was the reason why it was such a garbage product for so long. And then, yeah. you know, then you find out, oh, well, it's, it's actually only limited to 250 megabits per second per client. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that doesn't count as HPC. Sorry. Amazon CloudFront announces cache key and original request policies. Uh, which, again, was one of those changes that rolled out while I was working on my project. Uh, but actually, I really like this one because setting these cache keys and your origin request policies used to be like this long list of just numbers. And now you just set it up at a global console level and you just say, I want that one. So you don't have to pick it anymore on every CloudFront distribution. So if you're doing CloudFront at scale with you know thousands of CloudFronts, you don't have to enter this for every one of them anymore. So I actually kind of like this one. Someone should use Jonathan's because it's good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Do it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they announced cash key. So how about you cash me outside? How about that? Winner! I winner! I don't know if I did justice. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. That's just how it would work. Yeah. <laughs> AWS Control Tower console update adds more visibility into OUs and accounts. Which is way more visibility than even Amazon cares about OUs and accounts. <laughs> mm. You'd think if you're that high up in a control tower, you'd be able to see everything. you think so, right? Amazon SageMaker GroundTruth and Amazon Augmented AI add support for OpenID Connect, OIDC, authentication of private workers. Oh, I don't see this one. Um, <laughs> but a Easily enable operations, best practices across AWS accounts and regions with AWS Systems Manager Quick Setup. There's only one thing I need in Quick in Systems Manager, and that is Reboot Server, because that's the fix to all problems. Reboot. <laughs> that's the only Quick Setup I needed. Thank you. Yeah. you I love that you could enable best practices, but you can't actually make people use them. <laughs> yeah. You can lead the horse to water. Can't make him drink. <laughs> Eight ways to optimize costs on Azure SQL have been uh, offered. I have one way. Get, <laughs> get off SQL Server, step one. Step two, move to open source software. 
move off of Azure Cloud and ultra premium blob storage. Again, why they go? They use managed costs, right? They don't want to optimize. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> HTTP compression support is now available in Amazon Elasticsearch service. So you know that cost optimization thing. Uh, this is optimizing the wrong cost of my Elasticsearch service. The, the ingest compression is not where I needed the cost optimization. It's in the storage backend. Please, can you optimize that cost? I can't believe a meow can be compressed. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> Introducing AWS Purchase Order Management Preview. Proving that Amazon does listen to the customers who pay the bill, which is the finance department who was very mad they couldn't set up multiple purchase orders. Just for the record, our customers have been able to do that for years and years and years. And to finish it up, you can now improve website performance with LightSail Content Delivery Network. It's still CloudFront, right? Improve website performance is a bit of a stretch. I mean, you had to wait 16 years for the CloudFront update to happen first. So at that time, I could have. It is my favorite console to click refresh in, though. <laughs> it is. <laughs> nice. Uh, also, in my project, I was doing a lot of cloud CloudFront work, uh, which is what got me in touch with Ian because I had a problem with CloudFront. Uh, but, you know, it, it's interesting to me how you can just go click stuff in CloudFront and it just automatically starts updating itself, like, in advance of you actually hitting save. So, like... It's got to be this really weird state machine in the behind CloudFront that I don't understand completely. Like, well, if I set that to this and then I set it back to that and then back to that again, like, it, it has to now process all four of those changes before it. Like, why isn't there a submit button in CloudFront Console? I don't understand that. This is how they optimize the rollout of these things. Is to, they just start. They just start while you're still working on it. They're like, well, he's got 20. Well, see, but now they're ruining that because they're giving you this uh, CloudFront cache key and origin request policies. That's the last thing that I have to enter. Because now it's just in a drop-down list, and so now they're gonna they screwed themselves. That's all I can say. <laughs> and see, CloudFront distribution go back down to like sixty-five minutes again because everyone's got their cache keys and origin request policies out there. All right, I'm gonna leave the scoring for this round up to the auto instrumentation agent, and he said that Ryan won it. Yes, nice victory. Because I let you. Because I'm catching let, you. Because I let you read the one that Jonathan wrote. No, it's the auto instrumentation agent comment. Oh, <laughs> specifically. Okay, specifically that one. All right, that's Otherwise, Because okay. otherwise, if I said it was uh, Jonathan's, then he would argue that he gets the win, which he doesn't. Well, uh, Ian, this is the opportunity for you to tell us all about all your fantastic tools, if you'd like to share. Uh, and, you know, former two I used last week, which was great, and I really appreciated your help and uh, helped me debug this really awful Cognito problem and this really problem I had in CloudFront, uh, and it was really great. So I really appreciate your help on that. And uh, I don't use it all the time, but when I do use it former two, it makes me happy every time. So what else you got out there? That's what I say about Former 2. <laughs> I, I wrote the thing and I barely use it. When I do, it's, it's good. Um, I've got a few things out there. Uh, not that I can remember most of them. Uh, like you said, I did the Honeycode stuff a bit, bit earlier. Um, that was fun. And I got a little bit of, um, let's just say, aggressive feedback from the team over there saying, please, please don't do this. Please. <laughs> <laughs> that's fun. Okay, that's fine. You know, the thing about that was... They, they make a product that's basically an if this then that competitor or a Zapier competitor, and they didn't even think to integrate the two together at launch. What, like, I don't even understand that. It makes no sense to me that they did yeah. not have a way to bring data in or data out of Honeycode in any reasonable way. So silly. They made if this then that without the if, which didn't make sense at the time. It didn't. Well, and it's only the if this and that of Amazon services. It doesn't support anything outside yet either, but it, it's, it's got things. Like we mentioned before, we get the CDK for Terraform in, ter in Forma 2 now. Uh, and I'm working with the 
CDK for Terraform guys on a project to convert HCL into uh, the CDK for Terraform uh, templates. So you can expect to see that one coming up shortly. Oh, that's interesting. Go in that direction. That's kind of neat. Yeah, that's how I probably get into CDK is actually by using your HCL to CDK conversion, because I don't know that I want to go learn TypeScript enough to learn at that level of detail. Uh, I'm actually curious about this Cloud9 sync that you came out with. So you built a live sync from Amazon Cloud9 to your VS Code workspaces, and since my 2020 thing was I was gonna get off Sublime Text and I was gonna move to VS Code, uh, so and I and I've actually been really happy with my VS Code choices, especially with the integration to Docker and into Cloud and all that. It's really awesome. Uh, but Cloud9, the one time I tried it, I, I screamed and ran away very quickly. So I was curious, what was your use case for that one? I think that was a lot of um, co-collaboration with uh, my team. I think I wrote that maybe two or three years ago. It was one of the first projects I did as, as far as tooling. And to do that, I had to reverse engineer the WebSocket connection that Cloud9 makes with the browser. It's a lot of interesting uh, little nuances there. But yeah, you can download that for VS Code uh, and then have live curses uh, within VS Code. Since then, Microsoft have their own version of that. So, peak of poison. As much as I like, I want to like Cloud9, the fact that I had to run an EC2 instance to make it work annoys me. Especially when you see you know, Google, what they're doing with their stuff, and it's, it's all integrated into their Cloud Shell, which is really great. That doesn't require an EC2 instance. Uh, so yeah, it's it's one of those like I I want to like it. I just I don't find that I use it enough. How's the uh, how's the account controller going though? That was the other one you talked about last time you were here. You're still doing a lot with that. Yeah, that's well. Um, the control tower integration is fully complete, so that does take a little bit longer, but it does work. Uh, a lot of people a lot of people enter that, especially uh, solution architects actually doing demos. Um, AWS solution architects that is so. So what's interesting <laughs> if there was one thing I thought you were going to get angry feedback on, it was going to be that, but apparently <laughs> it's way off. <laughs> yeah, the Honeycode ones are kind of blow my mind that they were upset about that. Uh, you're doing deep composer stuff too? I'm just looking through your GitHub stuff at this point and just reading through. <laughs> deep composer <laughs> upload? You're, you're deep composing? That's, that's cool. Oh, yes, yes. Um, made a little tool to upload to deep composer before they have it um, in their console. Uh, they don't have any public APIs there, but I figured it out. So you can upload your own MIDI files and do um, deep composer things. Oh, well, maybe Ryan can finally deliver his deep composer masterpiece he's promised us. There you go. Like <laughs> <laughs> so far, it's just a whole bunch of like, you know, mechanizations around my music room without any real sound coming out. Yeah, so it's funny because we, we record on video uh, sometimes. Uh, for ourselves so we can see each other's reactions and all that. And so we see in the background of Ryan's pictures all the time his drum set and all that. And we're like, you're going to use that, right, for the podcast? He's like, yeah, yeah, I, I got this. And never, never happens. So. <laughs> nope. That's how it works. I'm not, I have all these things. I'm not very good at any of them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it is what it is. Well, awesome, Ian. Well, we do appreciate your contributions and helping make these Amazon services a little bit better on launch uh, within 24 to 48 hours, which I am impre- I'm impressed by your, uh, your ability to code those things up pretty quickly. Uh, and do that for free and, and contribute that to open source for us. And so we really appreciate it. And we do keep an eye on what you're up to because uh, we'd like to mention it here on the show from time to time. So we always love to have you on. Where can they follow you, uh, either on your GitHub or your Twitter account? Twitter or GitHub at IANN0036. All right, Peter, Ryan, anything else you want to share with the group? It is COVID day, you know, 12 million and five, I think. So we're in lockdown here. I, actually, how's that going in Australia? Is it is it locked down like it is here, or have you guys have you guys figured out how to actually manage a pandemic, unlike our government? 
Uh, are we doing better than you? Put that way. Yeah. All right, that's fair. Low bar. Low bar. Low bar. We're blazing a trail to herd immunity over here. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that, but okay. <laughs> I, I'm really enjoying these sports teams reopening, and then like four days later, like, oh, the whole team has COVID, and <laughs> now they're not playing. You know, the next eight games. It's gonna be a fun year. It's starting to feel like it's gonna be a fun couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Uh, maybe sometime in 2021 when a vaccine pops out of the world and that you know things are get more back to normal. I, if we do COVID predictions, I predict there's going to be a therapeutic that uh, makes us all comfortable going out before a vaccine exists. Like we'll just have to get so high that we'll want to leave our houses. <laughs> no, like if you, get, if you happen to get sick, if you happen to get sick um, and you're in a high risk group or even you aren't in a high risk group, you just don't want to be sick for three weeks, then you go to the doctor and you get a shot and you feel better. Uh, a therapeutic yeah, yeah. gotcha mm. and then okay. we're not afraid of accidentally killing our buddy's grandfather be a little bit more normal well that'll be interesting to see if that happens i i still i think the vaccine's probably likely but then we're going to have this really horrible anti-vaxxer uprising and you know bill gates is going to mark us all with the vaccine because he's behind <laughs> pretty much all the vaccines and it's going to be this huge moment in our culture where everyone just looks at America and goes, those idiots. <laughs> so I see it going well, I think they're going to do that anyway. Uh, well, we had to get through an election first. So that's yeah. going to be, that's step one. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Ian. We appreciate it. And uh, Ryan and Peter, we'll talk to you next week here at the yeah. Pod. See you then. See, see you, everybody. That is the week in cloud. We would like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Commvault. Check out our website, the home of the cloud pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us with the hashtag #PoundTheCloudPod. the cloud pod.